Please turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We are um, in this, uh, this series, we are, we are working through the book of Colossians together, and uh, today I'm going to specifically pick apart, it's not going to be a deep theological treatise, but I'm going to pick apart verses 11 and 12 of Colossians chapter 2. But before I did that, I thought it would be important that we went up and we had some context. I know you've been given the context, but I think it would be wise to talk about it again. If you're in Colossians and if you're in chapter 2, look at verse 8. And this, this scripture kind of sets this all up for us. And look what Paul says there in verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. And as an intro, I can't spend a lot of time on it today, but there was obviously a problem that was going on within the church here at Colossae. And the problem is the same problem that we have in our church too and every other church has. And it's really the issue of how do we as a community of people navigate through life? How do we navigate through truth and error in our lives? In our relationships, how do we navigate through truth and error? Paul is concerned about this issue. He says, see to it that no one would take you captive, this kidnapping, through empty or empty teaching and philosophies. What was going on is there, there were... A fair, there was a pharisaical group of Judaizers that believed in Jewish legalism that had mixed in a lot of different Greek mythology and all kinds of different things, pluralism at its best, and we live in that kind of world today, and these people were coming, and they were telling, the, these false teachers were coming, and they were telling the Colossian believers, no, no, this is what really it's all about. This is what it means to follow God. And so, obviously, Paul says, hey, be careful here. And I think that this is a very appropriate message, and I wish I could spend more time. I'm not going to today. But I do want to make sure that you know, as an intro, as a, as a piece of intro for us today, that this is a very important mission for you, young pilgrim, you and your wife, you and your community, you and your friends, uh, you and your husband. The navigation in truth, with truth, and error in your life. Paul could say the same thing to you in reality, and it would apply completely if he were to say, see to it that no one would take you captive through empty philosophies. Be careful of what you're being taught. And I began to think about this, and I thought that what could be appropriate for us, I don't know if you're like me, but I began to try to consider for in my life, who are the false teachers in my life? Who are the false teachers in my life? And, I, I, and I'll, I'll just confess to you, and maybe, and maybe you could agree with me, that maybe the false teachers that I have in my life could be the same as yours. Here's a false teacher that I have in my life. It's my feelings. My feelings are my teacher. How I feel about things many times, now follow along, how I can feel about things, I can actually say is my objective and not just mine, but everybody's objective reality. Do you get it? How I feel about it is what's the truth. Is that the truth? 
is how you feel about your relationships or your job or your addiction or fill in the blank, the reality? What's the truth? We have a very, this is very typical, and I'm not picking on your culture, but it's very typical in this city for us to get together and sit down around a table, and there's an, there's an appropriate place for this, I want you to know, I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but I want you to know that we typically will get around a table and we love to be very cathartic in the way we communicate with each other. We love to sit around and say, this is how screwed up life really is and how screwed up it all really is. And let me just tell you about how screwed up I am. And I guess we're just all messed up. Well, what's the truth? Right? I've given you the illustration before. Many times I don't feel like being married. Well, what's the truth? The truth is that I made a vow on October 17, 1981. Yes, I am that old. That this was going to be my wife for the rest of my life. That's the truth versus how I feel. And the feelings can be a false teacher. Be careful. And there are times to be able to sit around these tables. And there's times to be able to be cathartic. But hopefully there would be times, and let me ask you this question. Are there people in your life that you look at and say, Tell me, speak the truth about this into me. Speak, speak the truth to this. This is how I'm feeling, but I want you to speak the truth. And do, is there anybody that does that for you? I've challenged you that, what, like that all the time. Be careful because our feelings can be very false teachers. Our fears can be false teachers. Our old tapes is what I call our past can be false teachers. Maybe many of you grew up in a very legalistic, rigorous household. So there's a lot of old tapes that you have as it relates to your Christian pilgrimage and discipleship. There's a lot of ways that you see life as a result of your upbringing. Is that the truth? Where's the truth and error? Are there folks in your life that are helping you navigate through truth and and error. Have you identified your false teachers in your life? Sometimes I think that a good sermon is asking more questions than giving answers. What about that question? Have you identified your false teachers? How about the media? Is that a false teacher? That, that's, that's one of my teachers, and I got to tell you, that's definitely a false teacher. Let's talk about, just for a second, I'll give you one of my hot buttons that I was trying to preach to one of my friends about last week, and I was pretty hot about it. I find it amazing that we live in a world in a media where in, on the media, in, when you watch television, there's, there's no morals, there's no principles. Everybody's sleeping with whoever they want to sleep with. Everybody's doing whatever, they, and not, not only just that, but it's kind of celebrated that men are out there doing their own thing. Isn't it true? So if that's the case, and that's the message, and that's what we've been taught by the media, then why all the uproar about Tiger Woods? What, 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 what's so strange about Tiger's activity? That's what he's been taught. That's what, that's what our teachers tell us. It's, it's okay for you to be immoral. You don't, have to be, you don't have to have morals in your life. You don't even have to have any kind of structure. We are all our own people. And Tiger was his own. 
And he made, he, he made his decisions. Now suddenly we've become a nation where we want to live by the Ten Commandments and hold tiger to unbelievable rules of adultery and marriage promises. And wow, isn't it, doesn't it seem strange to you? It's incongruent. There, you, we do have these false teachers, don't we? That's all I wanted to say about it. It's a, it's, a, it's a quick intro into what's going on in the Colossian church, and I think it's a very good intro for you and I to consider our false teachers and how we're navigating. Let's go to verse 11. Look at verse 11 there, and it says, In him, it says, Paul, let me make sure, let's go up to 9 there real quick. Paul is trying to give us a, a beautiful principle because what he's trying to do is he's trying to draw this difference between what you're talking about and then what I want to talk to you about what the real gospel is. So Paul decides to go on this, this, this diatribe, this unbelievable statement of, okay, let me tell you what's really happening in Christ, what the gospel's really all about. And in verse 9, look what it says there. For in Christ, it's a very important thing that I want you to hear today and see today. For in, that word in Christ, which is something that's very Pauline. He uses this concept of union, this concept of what does it mean to be in Christ. And... Um, it's an important concept for us to get here. For in Christ, look what it says, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness, look what it says, in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. And here's today's verses. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. Verse 12 having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. One of the things that these teachers, these false teachers were teaching these uh, Colossian believers was the idea that they had to be uh, circumcised. And obviously in the Old Testament, circumcision was the badge, uh, really the badge of God's chosen people. And in fact, in Genesis 17.10, you'll see that God has actually said, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between you and me and the seed after you, and every man child among you shall be circumcised. And one of the things that uh, you need to know, and I think many of you do know, the way that we preach and look at the scriptures is very in the, in the context of covenant, God's promise to his people. This was one of uh, three or four major covenants that took place in the Old Testament. And then the beautiful, obviously, the, the, the supreme truth of it all is the fact that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. And that covenant, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll see each covenant kind of builds on the next covenant. And this, this covenant finally in Christ, now the new covenant is the supreme covenant that um, actually Paul's beginning to talk about. Because circumcision at that point was a sign of the covenant relationship, okay, between God and his people. Now, under the new covenant, what's the sign? The sign is baptism. Yay. Okay. Okay, but let me read something here that is important for you to know. This idea of circumcision and what was going on when, they, when Paul decides to pick on circumcision in verse 11, it kind of, it, it's, it goes a little deeper because what was going on here was this, was the Judaizers were saying that the physical act of circumcision was all that was required to get right with God. 
And the truth about circumcision in the Old Testament, when you were to look at circumcision, is that circumcision was, the, was only the outward mark or the sign of a man who was inwardly directed by God. So the circumcision, the piece of what you had to do something to be circumcised, didn't make you right with God. It was just a sign of what had happened inwardly for people, as well as baptism is today. The two are very parallel. Now, I want to talk to you about something here because what's going on here is these Jewish legalists in the Colossian church, they're they're doing something that we deal with. And I thought it was important to talk about. And I kind of am going to term it for you today here with this boxing ring. Look at this. This is that's supposed to be a boxing ring. Sorry. This boxing ring is, uh, there's, there's, we have two, we have, two, we have uh, fighters in two corners. And, and one corner you can see here, we have what's called religion. And these, when, where we have this is, this is where the Jewish legalists are. And they specialized in what you would call religion. And they would say things like this. Here are all the things that you have to do to get right with God. So there's this word. These are all the things that you have to do. And in this case, they said what you have to do, these you have to get circumcised. By the way, Paul dealt with this majorly in the Galatian church too, where people would say, this is what you have to do to get right with God. So you have to get busy. Continue to follow along with me. And in this corner, we have Paul who is what you would call the, I call him the gospel specialist. And Paul is basically trying to say in the scripture, he says, stop running around because guess what? It's all been what? It's all been done. In Christ, you you have circumcision. It's all been done. Stop running around. Now, I want to talk about this for a minute. Let me tell you what religion is. Religion is basically this. This is kind of a good way to look at it. You could call it self-salvation through good works. Okay? Self-salvation through good works. And guess what the problem is with self-salvation through good works is? is It is the perfect way to avoid Jesus, and it's the perfect way to avoid the gospel. By the way, many of us here have a very, oh, what should I say, religious view of our salvation, and many of us here have a very religious view of our sanctification, which is our sanctification would mean that if I get busy doing all these good things and get into an accountability group and go to church and and do all these things, then somehow there's going to be this magic pill that comes down from heaven. It's going to drop into my heart, and I'm going to be great and just run on roses all the time. Well, it's not true. Flannery O'Connor wrote about Mr. Motes in one of her books, and listen to this, because I thought it was very, very good. In one of her books, and and he said, uh, or she says this, he knew that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. What's Flannery O'Connor saying? Flannery O'Connor is saying that the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. How do I avoid sin? I become a good little boy. I become a good little girl. I do all the right things. And even in that, I have some kind of a superstructure in my mind that says, if I do those things, God will bless me. I can have my best life now. 
And this is what the essence of religion really is. It's this, I'm going to save myself by actually avoiding God by avoiding sin. Self-salvation, saving myself, saving self, avoiding sin. That's what's going on with this concept of religion. Let me say a few, a few things more because this is a good thing for us to think about. I think I thought about this this week. If I focused on the good things and only the good things that I've got to do to get busy to do, I don't need a Savior. Did you know that? I don't. Because uh, in this, how this could naturally play out is I could get into an argument with my wife. Does this happen for, with you? I get into an argument with my wife and we begin to talk about things. And let me tell you what I want to talk, talk first about. Can you guess? All the good things I've done. Huh, huh, huh. Right? Isn't it true? Well, I, I, what do you mean? I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. It's the perfect way Follow now. It's the perfect way for me to avoid sin because I can talk about the good things. Well, if I, if I start talking about the bad things, yeah, I'm a real... And, I need, and who do I need to help me with my... I need a God to help me with that. I need a cross to help me with the depravity of my condition. But boy, do I want to spend time on... I'm building up my record. Is that you? Isn't that all of us? Think about it. That's what religion can do to us. Now let me just tell you something. Self-salvation, this idea of religious and our, this understanding, and that what's going on here, can produce a great deal of moral behavior in your life. But inside, guess what's going to happen? You are going to be filled with what's called self-righteousness. Cruelty. And you'll actually become miserable because you're going to always be comparing yourself with other people, which um, I would say is a major problem in the church. And we're always going to be judging and we're always going to be wondering if we're ever good enough. That's what self-salvation and religious understanding is. Keller quote, Tim Keller says this, the devil, if anything, prefers men and women who try to save themselves. They are more unhappy than either mature Christians or irreligious people, and they do a lot more spiritual damage. Many of us here even today believe in a very strong self-salvation. I want you to be careful. Now let's go on. This concept that we're dealing with here that I just got done talking with you about is basically all the things that are going on in the church with Paul. And he's trying to say these things. The way these people see and do life is very different than this principle right here. It's very, very, very opposite. And now he goes and goes and he wants to talk about this. What does he say? Look at verse 9 again with me. Look what it says. For in Christ. Go to verse 11. In him you were also circumcised. 
So what Paul is beginning to talk about, and it's something that I would love for us, I just want to lay on you real quick. If this is the house, the concept that Paul's talking about is in here, Christ has died to make you be in the house. You're in. This concept of being in Christ, this concept of union with Christ. Listen to this. This is Peterson's message. The message paraphrase about the same verse that we just read. It's brilliant. Listen to it because it'll clear up a lot for you because I know many of you are probably in a theological fog right now. It's okay, so am I. Listen to this. This is on Colossians. It says this. Entering into this fullness is not something you figure out or achieve. This fullness with Jesus. You don't have to figure out or achieve it. He says this. It's not a matter of being circumcised or keeping a long list of laws. No, you're already in. Insiders, he says. I love that. You're already in. Insiders, not through some secret initiation rite, but rather through what Christ has done, has gone through for you. He's destroyed the power of sin. If it's an initiation ritual you're after, you've already been through it by submitting to baptism. God going under the water was a burial of your old life. Coming up out of it was a resurrection. God raising you from the dead as with Christ. Now here's the issue. Why is it, maybe you can help me, why is it that Christ and the cross, I know that I'm in, I'm an insider, but why is it that I like to live outside the house? See, because that wasn't that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were saying, no, you're not in. Christ's death didn't mean anything. Here's what you have to do. You've got to get busy with all these outside things you've got to do to get right. And if you get these things and check them off just right, then you can get in. And Paul's coming to saying, no. There, we have one person that was able to get you in. <laughs> you're an insider because of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's very cross-Christo-centered, right? It'd be, it's, it's, like, it's like the girl who um, was raised in this beautiful, beautiful uh, home. And just imagine it, one of these homes out on Franklin Road or something. Just this giant house. It's like 25,000 square feet. And there's a big deal every night made about dinners. And, there's, and, and on the menu, there's filet mignon and lobster with like garlic butter on the side and the little cups with a little flame. Mmm, Yeah? And have you, all, all, all the delicacies you could possibly want. I know many of you are dessert freaks. Enjoy that. That's good. That's not me. But the, the meals are unbelievable. They're so ostentatious over the top. But guess what she decides to do one night? In fact, not just one night. She decides this is how she's going to live her life. She looks at her mom and dad and she goes, you know what? I'm going to go outside and I'm going to stand on the corner and beg for my dinner. And you would look at me right now and you'd say, what? How could she possibly do that? What would go through her mind that she could possibly walk away from the treasures of filet mignon and lobster and go out and build a Kool-Aid stand? Isn't there a parallel though with that's how we live our lives? We don't want to remember the promises. We don't want to understand the concept of what it means to be in Jesus. 
this mystical union that's, that's spoken about. We don't get this unbelievable clear picture of it, but Christ surely, or Paul surely does talk about it a lot. And there's this a massive amount of power that takes place and says, you're an insider, you're in, you belong. You're in the house, young lady. Hey, girls, beautiful young girls here, you're in. Stop trying to run around outside. You're, you're in. You don't have to run around there and try to build up all those stands. If we were to look at your life, you'd have like just everything littered along the front yard. You're in, Paul says. You don't have to go about and be all busy being good. You're in well, for what Christ has done for you. You're in. Settle down. Settle down. You're in the house. The Father's in the house. He loves you. He cares about you. You can come and sit on his lap. He calls you son. He calls you daughter of the living God. Are you suffering right now? Like my prayer was at the beginning. The answer is probably yes. What would it mean for you to answer the question, you're in? <laughs> you're in. We need to begin to try to understand what this union means. Because many of us have had very false teachers and the old tapes seem to trump the gospel, don't they? And we need help. And many of us need friends to walk out into that front yard and to put their foot right on our fanny and kick us back into the house. And many of us don't need that foot, but we need a friend to come out and listen to us, don't we? And kind of whisper in our ear and tell us about who we are, that it's okay to go back in, that your shame and your sin doesn't disqualify you from living in the house with your father. Did you hear that, men? Your shame and your sin... And your addiction doesn't disqualify you from running back into the house, man. Many of you men here, don't walk back in. You need to run back in. Run in. Run in. So in the case of the circumcision that Paul's talking about here, the concept of the in principle, the in principle, in principle, would be this. In Christ, your heart has been circumcised. Your old nature and your sinful self and the sin's mastery of your life has been cut away. It's been excised. Not by human hands, but by Christ on the cross. The work of Christ on the cross is so miraculous and so phenomenal that it's supreme in its power over everything. That's the teaching. That's a very simple way to say it. Just really am concerned for many of you. Because I think that many times we, we, we got to explore what this, this whole point that Paul's trying to get us to get, which is what is it in him, this truth, versus this outside truth. a good word for us.
Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. We thank you, Jesus, for your cross and uh, for what it, uh, it means to us and forgive us for um, our willingness and our uh, rebellion, our stubbornness to want to, n- want, want to walk away and live outside the house. Lord, I, I, we, I pray that w- myself and my friends would, would, we, would begin to understand what it would look like to live in that place, that the massive ramifications it would have on our identity and what we are about and how we treat each other would have such unbelievable, beautiful gospel ramifications. Lord, we celebrate your cross this morning. We celebrate that cross, and we know that because of that cross now, you, Jesus, stand in our place. You, Lord, stand in our place. Through that, we're now, we now live in. Help us, Lord. Continue to speak to us. Help my friends this morning. Uh, I just, I don't know what this is, but I, I just feel very deeply for a lot of my friends who are really suffering this morning. I pray that you administer your gospel to them, that you administer your peace and your strength to them this morning. We pray all this in your name. Amen.